Open a new window, open a new door, travel a new highway that's never been tried before. Before you find you're a dull fellow, punching the same clock, walking the same tightrope as everyone on the block. The fellow you want to be is three-dimensional, soaking up life down to your toes. Whenever they say you're slightly unconventional, just put your thumb up to your nose and show them how to dance to a new rhythm, whistle a new song, toast with a new vintage. The fizz doesn't fizz too long. There's only one way to make the bubble stay. Simply travel a new highway, dance to a new rhythm, open a new window. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 16th, 2022. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi, James. Um, I have to say, though, as much as I'm glad to be here today, there's a part of me that wishes I were in Forest, Virginia, uh, <laughs> at, Jeff- at Jefferson Forest High School, because they have a program there that supposedly is magnificent. I'd love to catch up with it. Uh, they're in conjunction with Tim McDonald, uh, who runs iTheatrics, and um, he gave them pilot productions of the Giant Peach, uh, James and the Giant Peach, and Freaky Friday. And uh, now what they're doing is a new show by Joe Iconis. Um, and I'm pretty impressed by of course, Joe, who's one of our um, more impressive writers uh, along these uh, days. So so really, um, Punk Rock Girl is the name of the show, and he did it with Rob Rokicki. And you really have to give these people credit that um, – the the director and um the two directors actually um they they've really done wonderful work uh, apparently um Nikki White is her name Spence White is his name and um i've just heard so many people rave about this group that i wish i were there but it ends today so i'm hoping the next time they do something they'll invite me and i'll be able to get to forest virginia wow that sounds awesome uh, and iTheat- iTheatrics is uh, always finding interesting ways to get engaged with the community. This oh, really they wonderful. should do. And um, let me put out there that Tim McDonald has written a new version of Hans Christian Anderson with the Frank Lesser score. And somebody really should do it because it is one of the most brilliant books I have seen for uh, taking a final score and uh, putting it to new material. Amazing work. Amazing. So there. Well. I will look forward to seeing that because the movie has not aged well. No, it hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And that voice that you hear, those dulcet tones are Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. And you can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hi. Welcome back from uh, your your bountiful trip down to D.C. Yes, yes, and I'm happy because I've thought of a trivia question that I, oh. I, I think is – I'm oh. not sure how hard it is, but I think oh. it's a fun one. Okay. And I thought I would try it on you guys. Okay. Right. okay, hit us, hit us okay. with it. Okay, what uh, song from a 1920s musical mm. has a lyric that would seem to refer to the title <laughs> of a 1960s musical? <laughs> <laughs> that all-knowing laugh there. <laughs> that, that, uh, as with all the Felicia trivia questions, I have no idea. So, uh, Peter, what, what say? No, no, not a clue. Not how a about clue. somebody in our chat room? Anybody in our That's chat room? Right. Tony Janicki's in the chat room. Greg yeah, Christensen, Juliet Green. Yeah, really. Anybody? Rob Johnson, Paul Witte, Alan Teasley. Let me hear it again. Uh, a line from a 20s. Uh, 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 yes. What song from a 1920s musical has a, a lyric? that would seem to refer to the title of a 1960s musical. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm, as soon as you hear it, you're going to say, oh, of course. Oh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It's um, Whoopi. Making Whoopi. Uh-huh. The groom is nervous. He answers twice. Uh-huh. I do, I do. Ah! <laughs> ah. <laughs> Who knows if that that's, was the inspiration for the I do, I do? 
Maybe. I, I, ironically enough, this is tr- absolutely true. Uh, many of you may know that I've put these questions in a book uh, that is due at the publishers on November 15th called Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses. And I noticed I was uh, coming up with ones that I haven't even given um, Broadway radio yet. And I thought, you know, I may be able to get to 500. Mm-hmm. And I was at 499. And suddenly, Number 500 came to me, and it involved I do, I do. That's the funny part. It really did. So there. Well, there you go. Great (laughs) lines. Indeed. (laughs) So, Michael, we're going to have to talk about your uh, trip to Washington, D.C. in a a little bit. uh, But this week, uh, we were very sad to learn of the Mm. passing of Angela Lansbury. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of your take on Angela's impact on the Broadway world? I, it's hard to know where to start, isn't it? Uh, she was considered the utmost professional aside from everything else. Uh, I've heard so many stories about her professionalism and her kindness. Um, by the way, she lived in Manhattan Plaza, where I now live. Uh, I don't think for very long, but for a few years, I believe in the late 70s, early 80s, I think it was around the time of Sweeney Todd. And thereafter, and they had a lovely tribute to her in the uh, lobby the other day, which I can send uh, photos of that. But I, uh, I guess the first time I saw her on Broadway, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't go back and check the dates, but I think it was a show called The Little Family Business, mm-hmm. or was that after Sweeney Todd? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then it wasn't. Uh, well, then it must have been Sweeney Todd, uh, and that was that was just. An unforgettable experience. I saw that show the night after it opened on Broadway, uh, and that original production was magnificent. And she and Len Carew and the entire cast, and it was just absolutely unbelievable. Um, she, I got the had the pleasure of interviewing her when she was in the revival of A Little Night Music, and I. Uh, scanned that interview. For, it was for the Sondheim Review, so I can send that along. Uh, and uh, maybe you can, uh, it'll be interesting to, to read that in retrospect. But also, she um, she was so versatile and an amazing career with, you know, this is, sometimes they speak of people having, people's careers having different acts. And Often people maybe have two acts. I think I would say she had three or four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, she started out um, in the, as a character actress in the movies, and then she uh, she had a fallow period, which some of the obits have noted a somewhat fallow period. Although she never stopped working, but there was a time when she wasn't really considered kind of you know in the forefront of the of the stars um and then uh you know she she did anyone can whistle which may not have looked like a great idea at the time <laughs> because the show was such a flop but look at the people that she worked with and look at what it led to because she has always said that she would never never have gotten the role in Maine, the title role in Maine, if she hadn't done Anyone Can Whistle, because partly because Jerry Herman did see her in Anyone Can Whistle. And he thought from then that she could play Maine. And he was her strongest advocate. The, the, the story has been told and retold most recently in the obits about how she had to audition several times for MAME and they would not give her an answer because they were afraid that she wasn't enough big enough star and she hadn't actually done anything like that before and blah 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 blah. Uh, the initial the initial director of MAME was to have been Joshua Logan, which probably would have been a disaster. But anyway, he did not want her. So it wasn't until he was gone that she even had a chance. And the rest is history. Um, I I saw her so many times on Broadway. She was brilliant in Blight Spirit. Uh, She was so great. uh, She and Marion Seldes that they managed to make Deuce Sith Ruble, even though I think the script is from Hunger. Um, And uh, then those readings she did at the very end of her life uh, um, to benefit the uh, the acting company, uh, just just really wonderful, brilliant, thoroughly professional 
woman. And I'll never forget uh, that I had, when I interviewed her for Night Music, I, I told her that I had audio copies of her performances in The King and I when she took over um, uh, the first time that Neil Brenner did it, when she took over for Constance Towers for three weeks. And also that one night only, I think, 1969 concert production of Lady in the Dark at what was then Avery Fisher Hall. And she was so excited to hear that I had the audio. <laughs> and I went back and she, I, I, I said, well, I could bring them to the theater, you know, if you, if you like. Uh, and so I went back to her dressing room and she greeted me, you know, as if I was a celebrity. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it was just, it was just amazing. Uh, she, she was one of a kind and she will be missed very, very deeply. Peter, uh, any remembrances? It's sad that um, she didn't make it to 97. She was just a few days away. Mm. And that that's today. Today, in fact, yeah. was her birthday. Yeah. You know, so that was uh, pretty sad. I'll tell you, everybody was so surprised in 1963 when she was announced to do anyone can whistle. I mean, could she sing? I mean, it was well known that she was dubbed when she was in the Harvey girls, uh, the 1946 movies. So, but you know, I mean, she hadn't really made a career of playing, um, witches with a capital B. I mean, you know, really, uh, she was a tough cookie in these movies, even in blue Hawaii, <laughs> a musical, not that she sang, and it was an Elvis Presley movie. Mm. And she played his mother, even though she wasn't that much older than he. And uh, and she was just such a difficult, self-centered woman. That's who she played, difficult, self-centered women. Never any better <clears throat> than in the famous 1962 Manchurian Candidate, um, where she was not only a self-centered mother, I mean, she was a traitor to the country. And, um, and <laughs> what she did to her son was really uh, pretty potent. I'm not going to spoil it for those who haven't seen the movie. And that was the same year she did All Fall Down, where she played another self-centered mother. So this is right before anyone can whistle. And all of us were around at the time saying, are you kidding? Angela Lansbury in a musical? Oh, oh, <laughs> all right. Well, Lee Remick's going to be the real star. So, okay, maybe that'll work out. <clears throat> Not that we thought D Lee Remick was necessarily musical theater um, <laughs> material, but at least, you know, um, Lansbury had the supporting role. Um, I didn't see it. I had a ticket for it. I had a ticket for it in June. And those of you who know that it opened and closed in April, that's too far away. So the first time I saw her was in Maine. And that was in the Boston tryout. And uh, wow, she was terrific. Uh, beyond belief, terrific. Uh, really carried the show. <clears throat> Even the fact she had to change into so many costumes must have worn her out, but she wasn't worn out at all. Um, a little piece of trivia here. Um, in Boston, the song um, That's How Young I Feel wasn't in. It had been in Philadelphia where the show had stopped first. But um, um, it was replaced by a song called Do You Call That Living? And then they decided the first song was better. So they went back to That's How Young I Feel. So um, so I did see something very, very different. But boy, she was great. And the point is, you know, here's somebody who wasn't known for a voice. I mean, let's put it this way. When Verdon won as many Tonys as she did in musicals. Audrey McDonald has won almost as many Tonys in musicals. When Verdon made an album, Audrey mm -hmm. McDonald has made several. Mm -hmm. Where's Angela Lansbury's solo albums? Mm -hmm. They don't exist because she didn't have that type of voice. What she had was a character voice. What she had was a theatrical voice. Mm -hmm. And boy, did she use it. So a lot of us, while we're hearing her do songs like Open a New Window and It's Today and Mame, saying, okay, fine. But, but, Edie Gourmet's rendition of Feed Walked Into My Life had already been uh, making the airwaves, and we knew that song was going to be in the show. How was she going to handle this real torchy ballad, which, by the way, Jerry Herman said was the first classy song that he ever wrote. <laughs> he always felt that he never wrote a classy song, and that was the first one. Well, she did fine. She did fine because her voice had such texture to it. It had character to it. And that's what was so wonderful about it. So that was uh, great. All right. So what happens next? Dear World. Yes, that came to Boston, too. And I saw that tryout as well. And you could tell the audience was slightly disappointed that they were seeing the glamorous Angela Lansbury. But wasn't it wonderful that she was willing to play the mad woman of Chaillot? Of course, she was reunited with many of the people she had worked with in Maine. Jerry Herman, Lawrence and Lee, the book writers, um, same uh, set designer, so on and so forth. I think it was the same set. I may be wrong about that. But anyway, the point is the big guns were uh, people she'd worked with before. Okay. So she was really mesmerizing. No, the show was a terrible failure. It had so many previews, depending on who you talk to, it ranged between 45 and 58 previews. In those days, that was unheard of. 
especially for a show that went out of town. When you went out of town, you came and played one, two, three previews, and then you opened because you'd already had all those shows out of town. Um, Spider-Man, of course, had all the previews, but it didn't go out of town. Okay. So it didn't run very long at all. A um, hundred some odd performances. And yet she won the Tony. Um, next to Dolores Gray, I believe that was the um, performance that ran the fewest performances to win a Tony uh, in the best actress category, uh, in the musical category. So that was pretty impressive that they wouldn't deny her that. Now, she's the first one to dare to take on Rose and Gypsy, which also played Boston, which I saw <laughs> there. And it was really great because um, she had a a sort of a low-class demeanor in the way she played it. It was the side of a mouth. You could tell that she was playing an uneducated woman. And that was very different from um, Merman's. I think many of us have heard Merman's, not just the cast album, but the the um, soundboard uh, recording uh, of the whole show. And this, there was something about Merman that was um, on a higher level, not that she was a, a Robin blue blood or anything like that, but Lansbury took it down a bit and, and made her a little more guttural. And it really worked extraordinarily well, even though she was a woman who couldn't be denied. And here came another Tony award. So, I mean, that was pretty impressive. I thought she was quite wonderful in um, the King and I, and I'm very sorry that uh, people didn't respond. Um, Josh Ellis tells the famous story of how um, she had finished uh, a performance or was intermission. I don't remember what, but anyway, she came off stage and she said, um, Oh, they're so enthusiastic. And somebody pointed out there weren't very many of them. Yes, but they're so enthusiastic. It's a story that goes something like that, that she was just thrilled that the people who were there liked what she was doing. Sweeney Todd, you know, we feel bad that Len Cario didn't make the video, of course. You know, not, nothing against George Hearn, but you always want to see the original cast. But thank God Lansbury did it. Thank God she did, um, because people can really see that performance now and forever, which is really great. Pretty well. <laughs> so, go, go on, ahead, go Michael. On. All right. Oh, no, just to interject, when I interviewed her during Night Music, I brought up that that video and she literally said thank god that that exists ah, because ah. it's it's the only record sure. you know yeah. complete professional record of her right, in, in, right. A, in a show right indeed so. and it certainly um wouldn't have been pretty bell which was a show that was really notorious uh this was about a southern woman who found out after the fact after her husband died that he had been terrorizing and profiling uh blacks and mexicans she was living in um shreveport louisiana and um, she felt terrible about this. So she started sleeping with, here's where it gets weird. She started sleeping with um, the um, Mexicans and blacks and wound up in a mental institution. Now, this is dangerous territory, and she wasn't afraid to do it. And um, many people have heard me tell this story. And when I wrote the liner notes for the CD of Pretty Bell, I certainly told this story. But I went multiple times, and I went to the final performance. The show ended with her singing the word Pretty Bell three times. Pretty Bell, Pretty Bell, Pretty Bell. However, that night, that closing night, she sang Pretty Bell, Pretty Bell, and then she just lifted her arm up, her right arm up, and let it fall as if she had no power in it and just let it fall as if to say, mm -hmm. it's over, it's over. And you could really tell she cared about the show. How else could you tell? About 10 years later, they decided to make an album, and she was there. Mm. All right. I understand she got paid a pretty penny, but she was there. She could have said, you know, oh, no, I don't want anybody to remember that flop. It was, you know, so on and so forth. And it was interesting, too, with Pretty Bell, because I was at the very first performance and the closing. Um, but the very first performance, that Boston audience expected to see that lady from Mame, um, or at least the lady from Gypsy. <laughs> Not even dear. And this was the craziest of the bunch. And Boston audiences were very conservative then. I don't know what they're like now, but they were very conservative then. And so they weren't taken to it, even though some of the songs are amazing. One of the great 11 o'clock numbers of all time, and she delivers it terrifically. If you can get the album, please do. You you won't be disappointed. Oh, yeah, there are a million imperfect rhymes because Bob uh, Merrill said, they're Southerners, that's the way I write for them. But um, all things considered... I think the score is really quite ambitious and great. So, and she delivered it wonderfully. So I really feel bad that that never came in. And I truly believe if that show had come in, she would have had yet another Tony. Um, and that would have definitely happened. Uh, nobody's going to tell me differently because it was a galvanizing performance. By the way, um, unlike Michael, 
she only said one sentence to me and um that was it it was at a tony brunch and um jim bick as we were passing where he was escorting around and he actually said um he saw pretty bell four times and not that this is a brilliant remark but she said ah you're the one and walked away and that was the end of it so that's my only interaction with angela lansbury but um certainly i've been spending these last few days playing her cuts from all of the albums that i have i've um i really want to make it uh just an angela lansbury tribute festival and that's what i've done during these uh days um thomas z shepherd uh, we all know who he is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, recently posted on Facebook um, what, when we were editing Sweeney Todd. He's talking about the um, the uh, the cast album. Uh, J. David Sachs informed me that because of a large dialogue cut between scenes, Angela's reading did not get us smoothly from one particular scene to the next. I contacted her and explained to her the problem, which was due to my miscalculation, not to hers, and asked her if she would be willing to come into the recording studio and do a fresh reading of several lines so that we could have a smoother segue from this one scene to the next. She came in the next day, understood the problem, respoke the lines perfectly, and as always was remarkably warm and cooperative. By Actors' Equity Regulations, she was entitled to another full week's salary because she was now recording for a third day. Even in 1979, that was a pile of money. What are friends for? She asked. She did not submit a bill. You know, another thing, too, <laughs> um, it's been 10 years since Govidal's The Best Man, as it was called. And mm. three days before it opened, she was diagnosed with a hip fracture, um, the hairline fracture on her hip. Now, how many performers would say, oh, I can't do it? And management would certainly understand that an 86-year-old woman um, would leave the production. Nope, she went on, she got a cane. And uh, really, when you think of all the people who call in sick today because of a paper cut, and here's this woman with a cane. And after she was better, she continued to use the cane. She said, because, no, I think this character would have a cane. So <laughs> that happened too. Um, the only sad thing about that, I hope the audience didn't think, oh, she's still using the cane. She must really be in pain. Um, she was in her glory is what she was in. Oh, one final thing. Last evening was the dimming of the lights for Miss Lansbury, the, mm-hmm. the lights yeah. of Broadway. I uh, went to the Winter Garden uh, because which is, was the site of sure. Mame and Gypsy. And then I also right. thought, well, you can see the Gershwin from there, mm-hmm. which was where Sweeney Todd was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think the... Um, that LED marquee for Wicked went out, oh. uh, but the Winter Garden lights certainly did, and there was a, a small group at the Winter Garden, and there was applause mm-hmm. for that. So mm-hmm. that was that mm-hmm. was lovely. Mm-hmm. So it's just amazing. Did you guys uh, see the uh, the video in the New York Times? Uh, uh, Miss Lansbury had done uh, an interview. Uh, in 2010, that was to be run only after her death. Oh. I heard about this, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have it linked in the show notes. It's, it's just it's just full, chock full of goodness and just amazing and frank discussion about her life and, and Broadway and the whole theater um, – the whole theater world in general. So I, I have a link to that in the show notes. I encourage everybody to go check that out. But I have the obituary and the video, two separate links in the show notes. Uh, please go check that out. It's just such a uh, – I think Matt Tamanini said on today on Broadway that, uh, you know, she's uh, 90. Uh, somebody in their 90s when they pass away – you sort of expect it, but it's still, this one still hurts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move forward into our review section. The three of us, in fact, all on the same evening, I think <laughs> Thursday evening. Was it Thursday? Uh, we all saw Death of a Salesman over at the Hudson Theater. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on Death of a Salesman? Well, at the beginning, I, at the beginning, I didn't think I was going to like it at all uh, because much is made of the fact that Willie comes in. He's been on the road. He was supposed to go to Boston. He couldn't get there. He was just terribly tired, and that's that's most of the explanation. There's more to it than that, but that's what he tells uh, Linda Loman, his wife. 
And Wendell Pierce, to me, seemed healthy as a horse during that scene. Uh, he didn't seem remotely tired. He had plenty of energy. Uh, and um, I, I said, oh, this isn't going to be very good. Uh, he was good in subsequent scenes where he didn't have to <laughs> play tired uh, or not play tired. So I thought he was extraordinarily good. However, Sharon D. Clark. Oh, my God. Whoa. What a performance. Oh, um, as um, as a mother who certainly loves her sons but sees their flaws, I thought uh, it's great writing there. The fact that she she doesn't whitewash who they are, as so many mothers do. I mean, she really knows the realities. And while she hopes for the best, she's not far from expecting the worst. And she gets the worst as time goes on. But the nuances in this performance are, are have to be seen to be believed. Easily the finest Linda Lohman I've ever seen. Um, it's a very good production. Uh, Chris Davis, I thought, was excellent as Biff. Now, of course, Biff has to do... Um, he has to play himself in his 30s, but he has to play himself as a high schooler, too. That's always a stretch. And I'm not saying he was 100% believable when he's playing a teenager, but he did better than most Biffs I've seen. So um, I thought he was very, very good indeed. And uh, McKinley Belcher III is happy, I thought, was quite wonderful, too. Um, very spare production. Don't expect any type of set. Door frames, window frames, things like that. There are some embellishments. Who expects to hear a Gershwin song in the middle of um, <laughs> the show? But one came in um, before a very, very uh, important and poignant scene. So, so I, I think um, in in terms of the direction, I thought it was very, very solidly directed. And so, as a result, I would certainly um, feel that my hat should be taken off um, to Miranda Cromwell. Uh, she co-directed the London production with Marion Elliott of company fame. Um, I don't know why it's now suddenly Miranda Cromwell, I guess. So what we're seeing, I guess, has nothing to do with um, Marion Elliott. But uh, but I will say, you know, I, I have a few problems with this play. Uh, yes, I know it's supposed to be the great American drama and all that, but Willie has a line when he's caught in the uh, Boston hotel room with the Tootsie. Um, he says, someday you'll understand this. Words to that effect. That isn't a quotation. But he, and, you know, I, w- I would think that Biff would. I know that he feels his mother's been cheated on. Of course, I, the thing about the stockings, the mother's darning stockings, and here he is giving stockings to this woman he barely knows, um, who's willing to do him sexual favors. I, I, I would think that as time goes on, he would say, you know, a salesman, he's out of town, you know, I mean, um, it's not the greatest thing in the world to cheat on your spouse, but I wouldn't think that he'd make it the tragedy of his life. That doesn't really make sense to me, but maybe I'm just not as romantic as, um, or maybe I'm just too, ro- <laughs> no, I'm, no, not as romantic as many people are in this situation, but I've, I've often thought it was too much of a reaction that after a while he would get over it. But he doesn't, as we well know. And uh, it's sad that he doesn't because he really had potential. But And really, just a few credits away from, from graduating high school, maybe none of those three scholarships we hear about for playing football would have come through okay. But I, I would think that he would have come to his senses as time went on. So mm-hmm. um, I've often wondered about that. But uh, if one wants to see Death of a Salesman, now's the time. Now's the time indeed. All right, Michael, what did you think? Overall, I really loved it. Uh, and so did um, the person with whom I attended. I, I was, of course, mostly fascinated to see how it would work with Black actors as the Loman family. And I think overall, it worked really, really well. There's only one part of the story that I, I don't think really works. And I'll see if either of you agree. Um, there are those scenes somewhat early on where where we are told that that Viv is being scouted by like three universities as a as a football star and and but it it's made clear that he uh you know that he is in danger of failing uh what is it chemistry math 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 <laughs> um and that if he fa- you know if he fails yeah, thinking he- of guys and dolls in chemistry that's your problem <laughs> go <sorry>. ahead <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt. Anyway, um, and and in the original, it's uh, you know there are even lines to the effect that Willie and uh, you know is pumping up his boys, uh, both of his boys, uh, with this idea that they uh, they're just they're kind of owed 
a, a living. They're kind of owed success. Um, and in the original, I guess it's supposed to be, you know, because they're they're white men in America in the 50s and, you know, the American dream, blah, blah, blah. Um, so but those lines are still here. And I'm not sure that that any black person in the 50s would have said that. Um, so those lines did not ring true to me. What do you think about that? I see your point. Um, and I think we're just supposed to think that they're not necessarily black. Um, isn't it colorblind casting? Oh, see, um, no, see, no, I, I think absolutely not in this okay. case. And I know that 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 is an issue. And sometimes things are cast that way. But no, I was told. Uh, you were told. OK, that, fine. that he, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, as I mentioned, uh, Andre de Shields, who is now my, my neighbor uh, and who does <laughs> a brilliant job playing um, Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. And right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 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 he said, well, you know, only the Loman family is black and it's supposed to be about the dynamic. And then, of course, there's the scene that, that see people gasped uh, at our performance. And I'm sure they do every night where um, Willie tells Biff uh, when he's meeting um, Bill Oliver, he said, I mean, it's kind of an obvious setup. He says something like if if, if Oliver drops anything, uh, you know, off of his desk, you know, don't you pick it up. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, you let him do it. Don't you, you know, don't you maintain your dignity. And then sure enough, when mm. Willie goes into um, Howard, basically beg his boss, Howard, for a raise and winds up getting fired instead, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Howard drops something. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if that if that is in the original script. I've never I, I cannot recall that ever happening before. I don't think so. I think they added that. And in this incredible moment yeah. where Howard drops it and then they both of them just stand there right. and Howard's waiting for Willie to pick it up. Right. This is after Willie has just yep. said that line to Biff yep. uh, about don't pick it up. And, and and eventually he does. And the audience just gasps. And he does more than that. We maybe we shouldn't tell our listeners what what happens okay. after that, but he does more than that. That was a so total power is, play. Yeah, yeah, that mm-hmm. was. Yeah, yeah, and may and and in a way, maybe that was a spoiler. But I I just had to mention it because it no. I, it it shows how uh, I, to the to your point. I really do think they're supposed to be black. The characters are supposed to be black. And Never occurred um, to me. Uh, there there is a. Um, uh, Jesse Green in his review pointed out that there have been some very minor uh, alterations in the dialogue. For example, the college that Biff uh, hopes to attend is now UCLA instead of the University of Virginia because uh, the first black student was not admitted there until ah, 1950. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, right. and even then, only after a lawsuit. Ah, so uh, ah. that, that's kind of a smart All change right. that they made. Yeah. Case closed. I'm gonna, I, I'd like to talk about another flaw that I think is in Death of a Salesman. Mm. And that is the fact that since Biff has this um, information that he can hold over Willie's head. I'm amazed that Willie um, taunts him so much, you know, about you uh, in front of his mother, even, you know, you're a bum, you're not doing anything right, right, right on the ball. Isn't he afraid that Biff is going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know why it happened? Let me tell you why it happened and um, and spill the beans. He never has any fear of that. And I think he should. This has nothing to do with this production. I'm talking Arthur Miller now. And right. I, I really think that that's amazing to me that Biff never does that. And one could effectively argue that, well, that's because way down deep, he really still loves his father. I don't know. When you're in the heat of an argument, a lot of things come out that you don't want to have come out. And I would think that he would spill the beans. Well, he does almost one time. Yeah. Uh, he says something and then and then uh, happy, I think, says, what do you mean? He says, never mind. There's just he says something like there's more to it than, you know, Yeah, this is or, between yeah. him and me. He says, yeah, you know, yeah, things yeah, like that. Yeah. But I think he considering how much taunting goes on in that play. I, I right. think that he would uh, explode. I see your point. I see your point. He does um, have at, that one. He does have that one line where they, they were sitting down with the mother and. And he asks, and somebody brings up a woman, and the mother says, "Right." And you know, yes. So it, it is like it is bubbling under, like it feels like it's a a, a, a pot about to boil over. Right, right. I think it'd boil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as this production, I I had the same initial reaction that you did, uh, Peter, to Wendell Pierce's playing of the first scene, and I do I I don't think it was the right choice, but I guess I would say. That maybe it, it like maybe it gave him a little more of a arc um, that he wasn't 
uh, exhausted at the beginning, even though that's what the lines say. So, I mean, that's how I was trying to justify it. Mm-hmm. I, I still don't think it was the right choice, but mm-hmm. um, and he was quite superb um, mm-hmm. as as the play progressed, and especially at the end where he really seemed like he was losing his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sharon D. Clark is always brilliant. Uh, not much more to say about her. Andre DeShields just fantastic as, as Uncle Ben with a couple of really scary moments um, that I think really added to the power of the play. And uh, Chris Davis, um, to me, I, I have to say, I, I thought he was maybe not quite as devastated as he should have been at the end, especially on the line. Uh, well, first of all, with the discovery of of the woman in the hotel room, but also at the very end where he says to his father, I'm nothing pop. Um, it, it didn't quite seem to me that he was quite as devastated as he should have been. Uh, but it was still a, you know, there's still the, uh, a very skilled performance. And I thought he fit the role very well, as did McKinley Belcher, uh, the third as happy. And I, and I also do think it's important in any production of the death of a salesman that Biff and happy both seem uh, very, <laughs> they may sound superficial, but they both be very good looking with great bodies <laughs> because I, I think mm-hmm. it's supposed to be that they have all the raw materials, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and they can't understand mm-hmm. why they're not, uh, you know, why they're not, further along than they are and because they're really not very far along at all uh uh linda at one point calls doesn't she call biff a bum yeah Uh, i'm sorry happy she calls happy a bum Mm -hmm. and and uh she calls biff something else but she's very 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 explicit about (laughs) what disappointments they are and of course in this production there's the added um level of the of the racism but it's uh it's kind of the same in a way it's the same even in a traditional production with white people. When you talk about something um, being cut, <clears throat> I, I may have missed it. I may have been taking a note. I don't know, but I am pretty certain that in the first scene where we see Biff and happy in their bedroom, um, Biff at one point says, maybe I ought to get married because I remember audiences laughing at that because that is not the solution for Biff at this moment in time to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't hear that. I thought he did uh, say I, it, I but think he did say it. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. I, th- I think he did. I was uh, otherwise engaged. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I've only seen a handful of, uh, of Death of a Salesman, and uh, Peter and I uh, chatted at the theater about this. It's a difficult show for me to watch. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this, and it, it does come in at 3.10 or something along oh, yeah. those lines. Uh, they did add a little bit of music here and there, uh, and I, I felt that it, it, it really brought a lot to the show. And I, I bring up the music because I was thinking maybe that also adds to the whether or not uh, the Loman family is a black family or not, because I mm. I, I think that that... Uh, the way in oh, which that's the, a good point. Yeah. the music was added in. Yes, that's fair. And also mm-hmm. when uh, uh, when they are when Sharon D. Clark is uh, is talking to Willie and uh, they're sort of dancing, they start they start to step, which is uh, stepping is uh, an African American uh, right. dance that uh, that has. Uh, yeah, I've seen in college settings, but um, I so I, I think that they repeatedly bring this up. And while I don't think they explicitly talked about uh, they they explicitly changed any words or talked about race, mm. the looks that uh, that were given when he was talking about how nobody will see him in Boston. Uh, and I can't get the buyers. They won't even mm. look at me, or they follow me, or it sort of implies that he's being treated as a thief and not as a professional. Mm. So I, I really enjoyed this production. I I think that the 2022 uh, Theater World Award recipient uh, Sharon mm. D. Clark mm. is going to be a 2023 mm. Tony Award mm. winner. Mm-hmm. She was nominated for Carolina Change for in both Tony and Drama Desk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that she's going to get nominated and win. 
uh, when this comes around ne next year. Another salient point about this production we should mention is that um, there are several expressionistic devices, I guess that's what you'd call them. And, and, and on that note, uh, we should recall that the original title of the play was Inside His Head. And I think the original idea was that it was supposed to be even more expressionistic than it turned out to be in the original production. But uh, for example, this one has, um, there are some scenes that where characters are seen in silhouette uh, and then there's uh, occasionally slow motion effects and also a lighting effect that looks like snapshots of certain scenes. Yeah, um, so uh, whether that adds uh, to the play or not is debatable, but just so you know, it does have the, those elements in this production. So that is Death of a Salesman playing at the Hudson Theater. It's uh, playing through January 15th, 2023 right now. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter and Michael also got over to the American Airlines Theater to see the Roundabout Theater Company's production of 1776. Uh, as we have noted a number of times throughout the years here, 1776 is Peter's favorite play. <laughs> and... Uh, or play or musical I, or both, I, I, or both? Uh, let's play is not inaccurate yeah um, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's the it's the best book of a musical ever okay and so it's always problematic when you're seeing your favorite being done again and actually and and rethought so peter what did you think about this production well, you may have heard about the famous 10-minute rule that Sondheim talked about, where you can do anything you want in the first 10 minutes to establish what you're going to do for the rest of the show. And that uh, is the way that you let the audience know what's on your mind. Um, you know, think about funny thing happened on the way to the forum. There's prologus at the beginning of the show. The narrator, he's not pseudolus yet, letting you know that you are at a theatrical production. He's letting you know that. He introduces the character. She plays Medea later this week, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So at the end of the first act, when he wants to get out of trouble and he looks at us and says, intermission, we laugh. Um, now suddenly he's prologus again. And that's fine because the ground rules were set up. Imagine Henry Higgins or Harold Hill or Hamilton looking at us and saying, intermission. We wouldn't accept it because the style hasn't been set up in that way. All right. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the style here. So uh, uh, we uh, they, uh, 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 we should point out that, um, and I guess you guys noticed this, that the press release said when you review this show, mention that this is a group of individuals who embody multiple multiple representation multiple representations of race, ethnicity, and gender. They're people who identify as female, transgender, and non-binary. That's to be in every review. So we covered that base right now. That's not the only way they don't remotely resemble the men who established the United States of America 246 years ago. All of them wear contemporary clothes. Okay. In the 1969 and 1997 Broadway productions, we first saw characters, not actors. Now here instead, we're seeing performers and we're not seeing characters. Only now. Well, they change into their 18th century costumes and become the characters that Peter Stone and Sherman Edwards wrote. So who are these performers? None is a cisgender male, although aside from the show's few female roles, each will be playing one. So who are they? I suggest that these contemporary clothes tell us that they're a group of performers who very much wanted to do 1776. Maybe they belong to a community theater group. When auditions were held, not enough men showed up. Perhaps the one that did were found wanting in talent, um, attitude, availability. Um, but these performers weren't deterred by the turnout, and they still yearned to do the show. Not even Elizabeth A. Davis' advanced pregnancy would make her give up the chance to perform. Now, there's a trooper. You might even feel you're at a community theater production when you see the show curtain. Um, it's, uh, it's red, white, and blue, but barely because it's very faded. Well, maybe this was the curtain they had in 1973 when it was brand spanking new when the community theater first mounted 1776. Maybe it's constant use from other productions and 
maybe they even did George M as well, made it threadbare and weather-beaten. And it parts in the middle and doesn't rise into the rafters the way most professional theaters um, have the ability to do. This is the type of curtain you see in community theater. There's no set to speak of. Random tables and chairs will have to do. And, you know, well, many community theaters are hurting for dollars, just like their big brothers and sisters, professional theaters for that matter. Now, all this may seem like a very snide way of handling it and that um, at best a left-handed compliment. But remember what I recently said about the Bergen County's community theaters ragtime in Oradell, New Jersey. Once again, community theaters come through and proves that many people who wanted marriage, children, and paychecks every Friday nevertheless have talent of a great magnitude. So none of this is a slam against the cast who shows talent at every turn. Everyone's truly terrific. As extraordinary as, well, Carolyn Payne was at the Third Street Theater's 1988 production of Minnie's Boys in Phoenix, a community theater. Now, the community theater take is, of course, my own opinion and my own interpretation, to which I'm entitled. Justice co-directors Jeffrey Page, Jeffrey L. Page, and Diane Paulus are entitled to theirs. And they expect me and every theater goer who enters the American Airlines Theater to think otherwise. Now, the Playbill notes, and I don't know how many people read the Playbill notes, especially those who arrive at 8 o'clock on Tuesdays and Thursdays, thinking the show started at 8 and not at 7. I don't know how many people read those uh, notes. But There's um, Jeffrey L. Page uh, saying, we can blur the lines between the occluded and the included. We can illuminate new dimensions of our national story. While Paulus says, as artists, we are embracing our American history as a human predicament and are committed to the process of learning from the past in order to move forward together. All right. And then Jason P. Frank in New York Magazine interviewing um, Sarah Pokolob said the casting strategy's goal to remind audience of the faces that were not considered during the Declaration of Independence writing. Is this what audiences will really take from this production? Is that what the, I think here I am a few minutes ago saying I took Death of a Salesman as non-traditional casting. I don't think that they're going to look at these women and say, oh, oh, these, oh, I get it. What they're saying is that these are the people who weren't part of the equation when the United States of America was formed. Oh, that must be it. That's why. No, I think they're just going to accept it as a non-traditional production. Just to be fair to this um, analogy, I think it was true of Follies way back when. There was all that talk about Follies represent the decline of America, the decline of American values. I imagine audiences came and thought it was about two couples fighting, interrupted by some terrific songs and production numbers. So it's very hard to get audiences to glom onto a concept that is out there. So, and seasoned theater goers, and certainly Roundabout has seasoned theater goer, um, will simply see this as a non-traditional cast production. I don't think they're going to say, ah, ah, these people's forebears weren't represented in 1776, 1969, 1997. So Jeffrey L. Page and Diane Paulus are making it up to them. So I don't think that's what's going on here. All right. So there's that. The other thing, the singing. All right. In the show about liberty, um, this production takes more than one. Um, But but it it has to happen. Many of today's directors want to bring 20th century musicals into the 21st century, and that involves singing. um, Many of today's theater goers have experienced many fewer Broadway musicals than rock concerts and episodes of American Idol. For those vehicles, the norm is long-held notes and melismas. You You know, melismas, single notes stretched over many syllables. Uh, an entire generation has been taught to scream when somebody holds a note for an inordinate length of time. And I think performers like it because it shows, wow, we're being appreciated. So directors of today's musicals have found out what they like and how they like it. And they give it to them just that way. So, so John Adams sings vote. Yes. And um, Robert Livingston in New York uh, in, but Mr. Adams goes, but, um, <clears throat> Alison K. Daniels' Abigail albums. What was there, John? What was there, John? Uh, which was never there, but um, but but the ultimate compliment woos from the audience. Um, at the end of the number, there were woos. Um, at our, my performance, um, October twelfth matinee. You were going on October twelfth, Michael. Did you go to the matinee of the evening? Evening. 
Oh, all right. So um, the champion was uh, Sarah Prokolob. Uh, she received five woos from different theater goers. <laughs> five woos. <laughs> five woos, yeah. Um, after she finished Molasses to Rum. Uh, I mentioned that New York Magazine article. Well, uh, Sarah Pokolub, um said that this production is inviting our audiences to consider how our country was founded without the consideration of people like our cast in mind. Whoa, I, you know, I say this musical indeed shows that Adams, Franklin and Jefferson greatly considered people who were black because the break from England had to be unanimously approved by all 13 colonies. The musical stresses that these three men agonized that had no choice but to compromise with the two Southerners who would not give in. Rather than be ashamed of Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson, there's a good chance that roundabout theatergoers will instead admire the strong attempts that they made for a cause that would not profit them in the least. That's, I think, what audiences have done in the past. And it's not as if Peter Stone's script gives the slavery issue short shrift. I, shrift, I checked. All right. Rutledge's objection to the slavery clause starts on page 112 of the script I have. The issue isn't resolved to page 132. That's 20 pages out of 141, nearly one-seventh of where, where slavery is front and center. So I don't think that um, without the consideration of people like our cast in mind is a, is a fair thing. Um, right. Jeffrey Page's choreography is truly terrible. Um, it's bizarre. I mean, people make herky gestures that have no basis in reality whatsoever. Things you'd really swear that a lot of these people are having strokes. Maybe they would, considering what's at stake and the fighting that goes on. But yeah, but uh, things that drove me crazy was there's uh, there's Adam singing. They can't agree on what is right or wrong, and everybody's doing the same gesture. At least if you're going to have these herky jerky gestures, make one side do one kind and the other side do the other. Cool, cool, considerate man, more herky-jerky gestures. They look like they're having strokes. And what we do, we do rationally. Not those gestures, they're not rationally. But the biggest problem. No, not. It's not the biggest, but it's right up there. No scoreboard. No day-by-day -day wall calendar. Just projections. Wouldn't be bad if they kept the projections up there. They just come and go. And no, the audience needs to see exactly where we are in terms of votes and how far away we are from July 4th. It's amazing. When you're looking at that scoreboard, when you need to, when you say, wait a minute, what's the score? Wow. June 28th and only six colonies have said yay for sure. Whoa. You don't get that drama when they're just projections. There was no reason why those projections couldn't stay up all the time. Just as the scoreboard and the day-by-day -day calendar and every other production stays up all the time. So there are some good ideas. Um, Mama Look Shop brings in um, John Hancock suddenly plays a mother who's looking for her child, hoping he's not dead. And that, ironically, was in the original production in New Haven. They had Virginia Vestoff and Betty Buckley and um, Carol Piacenti, who um, was written out, playing mothers looking for their sons. I don't know if Diane Paulus and Jeffrey L. Page got, knew about this and said, let's put it back. Or if they said, hey, I, we've got an idea. I don't know. But I think that's a good idea. And there's a nice metaphor with the courier. The courier who comes in at first is limping terribly, been wounded. And every time you see the courier, he walks better. That's good. It's a nice metaphor to show that the army is getting stronger and there is a chance that it's going to win. So, um, so I think that's uh, pretty good too. Um, but I think the thing that really will set people off and make them say, Oh my God, what are they doing? Is a scene where John Adams picks up Thomas Jefferson's violin case and plays a few air guitar licks a la Jimi Hendrix. Uh, yeah, uh, I understand, you know, that these are actually people just putting on the show, as was established in that 10-minute rule. But I, I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to feel that 10 minutes is more than enough for them to rule out this production. Um, I think they might enjoy better 1776 that does it the way the authors wrote it and envisioned it at their local community theater. Okay. Uh, Michael, what did you think of it? Well, I should preface my remarks by saying I read um, on a uh, chat board uh, somewhere, which shall remain nameless, someone wrote something to the effect uh, if they wonder if old white men, male reviewers, have considered the optics 
of uh, criticizing this production. Uh, so I don't, you know, what to say about that. I, I, you know, I can't change the fact that I'm an old white man. Uh, you know, I'd like to think I'm still entitled to an opinion. I don't think mm -hmm. people can only have opinions on mm -hmm. things that have been created by people exactly like them. Uh, so, but if someone wants to discount my opinion, uh, for that reason, you're, you're, of course, you're free to. Uh, but so I just wanted to say that at the beginning. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, I kind of despised it. I, I don't, I don't understand the point of it. Uh, as someone else said that to me, asked me that question the other night. They said, "What is the point?" And I don't, I wasn't able to answer. And it would seem. Um, uh, as Peter mentioned, uh, just reading quotes from the creative team and then this Sarah Porkalob person, uh, it would seem like that that everyone wasn't even on the same page as far as that, even among themselves. Uh, if if it's supposed to illuminate the story in some way, I really don't think it does that. Uh, I, I like your community theater idea. Peter, I, I like that idea a lot. I think that would have given it a context. Um, so maybe that's what we're supposed to think, something like that. But I, I don't, I don't think it was clear. I don't think it was stress, and I and I feel that ultimately there was really no point in the in the non traditional casting of it, uh, as a, compared to many other non traditionally cast productions where we can see what the point was. I, I, I do not see it here. Um, as far as, uh, uh, you know, one has to be wary of saying that, that the creators of this production didn't understand the show, but there are some indications of that, as specifically um, two lyric things I noticed. Uh, in this production, uh, in the opening number, sit down, John, they, they, you know, they do have John Adams repeatedly singing vote. Yes. Vote, vote for independency. And then other people respond. Someone ought to open up a window. But then at some point in this production, John himself starts singing. Someone ought to open up a window. No, he's supposed to be so focused only on the vote for independence. He doesn't care about flies. He doesn't care about the heat. He doesn't care about any of that. So why they gave that line to John Adams to sing uh, when it was completely unnecessary for them to do so is beyond me. And then um, in the song, The Egg, it, as the song is written, it begins with Adam sing, uh, singing, it's a masterpiece, I say, they will cheer every word, every letter. He's referring to the Declaration of Independence. And then Jefferson says, sings, I wish I felt that way because he's got his doubts, um, you know, uh, about it. Well, in this production, uh, that it, it, the song does begin that way. But then later on in the song, Jefferson himself sings. It's a masterpiece, I say. So aren't they paying attention to the lyrics? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't understand what that was. Um, I, I thought many of the performances were excellent, but others I did not. Uh, to me, um, Crystal Lucas Perry was just not dynamic enough as John Adams. Uh, that character needs to be single-minded and very, very, very dynamic and charismatic. And uh, although I didn't think there was anything inept uh, uh, about her performance, I just, she didn't seem any of those things to me. Uh, and I really do think that's vital, vital in that character. Um, I did enjoy uh, Patrina Murray as Benjamin Franklin very much. And am I the only person, did, did she not remind you very, very, very much of Whoopi Goldberg? Yep. Not only in um, yep. her appearance, which is largely because of the hairstyle she's wearing, but also her voice. Yes. That very, very low voice mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and delivery. I, I, if you had told me it was Whoopi Goldberg, <laughs> and I, if I had been sitting a little further back, <laughs> I would have I would have believed you. <laughs> um, but regardless, I, I thought she was quite good in the in the role. Uh, I did not like the Richard Henry Lee. Uh, I didn't think that translated well. Um, 
And uh, and uh, <laughs> um, there's so much we could say about Sarah Porkalob uh, and her meltdown in uh, was was it Vulture was that yeah. word yeah, yeah. Vulture yeah. Yeah. magazine yeah uh, I I think we'll you know we'll table most of that or or maybe never get to it but but I do have to say after reading that I think it would be uh, very easy for many people to to dislike her performance. Um, you know, retroactively. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is, you know, because that's just a human nature thing. But Mm -hmm. I do have Mm -hmm. to say that even before that interview, that incredible interview appeared, um, I really noticed from the beginning that I thought she made a huge mistake. Uh, She made a very, very lazy acting choice of choosing to smile on every line throughout the show, basically until uh, she flipped in molasses to rum, and I don't think it's supposed to be uh, that. That's what it's supposed to be. Uh, John Cullum uh, did not did not do it that way in the movie, uh, uh, and I'm sure he didn't do it that way on stage either. Uh, I I I think yes, I, I I do understand the point that it's supposed to be you know southern charm uh, that then turns into evil uh and and, but i don't think that you're supposed to have a shit-eating grin on your face throughout the entire play until that moment it just seemed too facile and too uh again a very 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 lazy choice so i don't i don't think that that was a good choice on her part um uh don't know i don't have a lot else to say i i think that the the whole concept of the show and the whole concept of the score was written for male voices and of course it loses a tremendous amount uh for that reason uh, and i don't think it gained anything in recompense uh perhaps maybe some of the more lyrical numbers like uh, till then uh parts of of that sounded very lovely and uh, also uh, Mama Luxharbis, as Peter mentioned earlier. But overall, I, I thought it was uh, a net loss. And um, um, well, you know, it's <laughs> what's done is done. And, and uh, I guess they may, may they maybe tried to make whatever point they tried to make. And I'm I'm not sure that I got it. So that's 1776 at the uh, Roundabout Theater's uh, American Airlines Theater. It is uh, scheduled to play through January 8th, 2023. Uh, Back in January of 2021, we talked with Diane Paulus on This Week on Broadway. Uh, I'm going to link to that interview in our show notes as well, in case you want to go back and listen to that. So we had a lot to talk about that this morning, and uh, I think that wraps it up for today. So before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link, but that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. Actually, you can also go to broadwayradio.com and play it directly from there as well. But you can, uh, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you will find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? His real first name was Adolf, but he changed it by the time of his second Broadway appearance. His new and seemingly unique name was also the name of a character in a 21st century musical. What was Adolf's more famous name? What was the 21st century musical that had a character with the same name? All right. After appearing in the 1924 review, I'll say she is Adolf Marx changed his first name to Harpo. That's also the name of the character that Brandon Victor Dixon first played and Sio Scatliff subsequently played in The Color Purple. Paul Witte beat out Tony Janicki by a single minute. They were followed by Juliet Green, Mike Meany, Jim White, Josh Israel, Brigadood, Joe Sugros, Greg Christensen, Jack Lester, Isaac Blevins, and Robert Lobiondo. This week's question, what does Roger Debris have in common with the actress who played the lead in a 2002 musical revival, the fourth revival that this musical experienced on Broadway. All right. 
If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us about this week's musical moments. Well, of course, uh, we are tributing Angela Lansbury and a lot to choose from. Uh, I made it easy on myself <laughs> and uh, picked Open a New Window for our opener uh, from MAME. And for our closer, another song from that score, My Best Girl, sung by Angela Lansbury and Frankie Michaels, who actually mm-hmm. died uh, before her, even yeah. though he was much younger. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier, maybe not, uh, that in 2016, for the 50th anniversary of MAME, there was a little uh, gathering at Sardis of many members of the original cast, uh, including Miss Lansbury. And uh, I was privilege to be the photographer for that occasion. So I got some amazing photos there, which maybe I'll send along. And, uh, and uh, so, but Miss Lansbury spoke movingly about uh, Frankie Michaels having died not long beforehand, mm. uh, but that was an incredible event. And, and uh, my best girl is a really beautiful moment in that score uh, where Miss um, Lansbury showed that she could sing a ballad, very, very beautifully uh, when she wanted to. <laughs> uh, and so uh, um, really goodbye, Angela Lansbury. We will, we will miss you and we will not see the like of you again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You're my best beau You're handsome and brave and strong There's nothing we two can't face If you're with me Whatever comes We'll see that trouble Never comes And if someday another bow comes along Determined to take your place I hope he's resigned to falling Someday, when everything turns out wrong